What's up, friends? Welcome back to another episode of the New Evangelicals Podcast. So glad you are here with us on this episode. We did something kind of unique. So here's the here's the quick backstory. A few maybe weeks ago, someone sent me this post from an Instagram account called the Center for Biblical Unity that pretty much said that James Cone and his Black Liberation Theology is a false gospel. And there are four slides unpacking why. So I ended up sending this to Trip Four, and I said, "Hey, I would love to know what Adam Clark would think about this." Now, Adam is someone who we've, we've had on the show before, and who has done a lot of work with Trip. He has been mentored by James Cone personally, and also is an expert on Black Liberation theology. So it worked out where Trip said, "Well, if you want, how about Adam and I come on? We respond to this together with you, and we also give people a taste of what's to come." for Beer Camp Godpot Edition, because both Trip Fuller, Adam Clark, and myself are going to be there in October. And I said, Trip, this is why you are considered a brilliant theologian, because that's a great idea. So that's what we did. So this episode is me, Dr. Adam Clark, Dr. Trip Fuller, walking through the slides that pretty much say Black Liberation Theology is a false gospel. And honestly, the reason why we do this, let me explain something to you. I understand that I am not qualified in a lot of ways to talk about this kind of stuff. In general, I'm not a legitimate theologian in the academic sense. And the person who sent this to me said, I would love to see your thoughts and see your response on this. I said, hey, I hear you. But it's just not my wheelhouse. And I would look foolish, I think, trying to take this on. So I, I... Part of the reason why we're able to do the podcast and why we, we do it so often is because we want to give you guys as close to the source as possible when it comes to the perspectives that I think need to be expressed. I think one of the the downsides of evangelical culture is that we were always informed about other worldviews through the lens of evangelical gatekeepers, right? So you were introduced to atheism through an apologist. You were taught about liberal theology by an evangelical gatekeeper or a pastor. We don't want to do that here. So I'm not going to give you my answer necessarily. I'm going to have Adam Clark, the man who literally was mentored by James Cone himself, the father of Black Liberation Theology, giving you his response in the moment to this slide and and to these series of slides. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. Honestly, it was great to record with Tripp and Adam. They're both brilliant. Tripp's commentary is also so thought-provoking. So I really recommend doing your best to buckle up and listen because there's a lot here. That being said, as always, friends, thank you for supporting the show. It means the world to us. If you want to support via donation, you can click on the link in our show notes and you can donate. If you want to become an advertiser for the podcast, you can email us, thenewevangelicals at gmail.com. That being said, without further ado, here is my episode with Trip Fuller and Adam Clark. Talk to you all later. Look at that countdown. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. We're in. What's yeah. up, friends? Hello. Hey. Welcome. Um, okay, this is kind of I, I trip. I think this is fair to say this is another uh like hybrid episode between homebrew theology and the new evangelicals. But did you ever think, by the way, like two years ago, you've been hanging out with me so much, the point where you see me almost weekly, we talk almost daily. I mean, at this point, we're pretty much inseparable, in my opinion. Well, you didn't you didn't know that after I sold my soul to Satan, I have to ruin three evangelical podcasters each year. 
and <laughs> I try to corrupt them with all sorts of things. And that's why I was like, this isn't working. I need him to talk to my friend, Adam. And then <laughs> I, and I am the exorcist. I'm taking yeah. that unclean spirit out of trip. Uh, <laughs> casting it to a lake of fire. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is great to be here both with, uh, with Adam Clark and trip four, uh, honestly, friends. So this is actually a very interesting episode. And this is also kind of a taste of what is to come at Theology Beer Camp Godpod Edition, because both myself, Adam Clark, and of course, Trip, we're going to be there talking about stuff probably like this and way other things, way other more important things, honestly. Um, but this conversation on the podcast, the reason why we're having it is because um, I was telling Adam before we started recording that a lot of white evangelicals that um, in, in the culture that a lot of them come from, including the culture I came from, we're kind of in this in this space that kind of feeds you how to think about, about outside theological positions that maybe evangelicalism sees as threatening. And and I found this uh, this Instagram account that we're gonna get into talking about about James Cone and black liberation theology and calling it pretty much another gospel. And I was like, well, you know, I'm not qualified to respond to this, but I know someone who is because not only have I had Adam Clark on my, on the podcast to kind of dive into this, but he is, I would say, someone who is incredibly authoritative on the subject and also has been mentored by James Cone himself, uh, which is, I think, just an, an amazing thing to keep in mind. So let me just do this really quick. Um, l- let's do this. I think, audience, you know who Trip Fuller is, but just in case, Trip. Give us the the 10 second intro. Say hello to the audience. Oh, hello audience. This is Trip. I run Homebrewed Christianity podcast. Uh, I'm a philosopher and theologian and uh, Adam is one of my friends and I love getting to do classes with him and hang out with him. And I'm super pumped after doing two classes while stuck in lockdown together with thousands of people reading black theology and and trying to keep each other sane as parents with uh, teenagers in the house with us. We get to hang out in person, nerd out with a lot of friends at Theology Beer Camp, and I get to give him the awkward long hug of like like three years of hug all at once. So like, <laughs> like that, I'm looking forward to it. And clearly everyone that is a new evangelical listener should come, and you too uh, can uh, have fun at Theology Beer Camp. They're going to drop your code in, Tim. T-N-E. Yes. You get $50 off. And heads up, Theology Beer Camp is not just a metaphor for getting ingredients to brew a zesty faith. It also is going to have a mug that you get when you get there that you then can use throughout the time there and enjoy all sorts of craft beverages. There'll be a host of different breweries. We're having a tailgate party uh, where you know, like the drinks and food and all this kind of stuff, there's tons of stuff included. So on top of, and, and they get to see you, Tim. Yeah, <laughs> That's true. Yeah. That is true. I'm bringing all the evangelicals I've ruined on behalf of the dark Lord. <laughs> Hang out with me. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I can say between Adam introing to me, uh, giving me the intro to James Cone, then me reading James Cone, and then Trip Fuller's process theology, my evangelical tradition is ruined. So, really, I can blame both of you for my deconstruction uh, straight into Marxism, godless atheism, ultimately. So, uh, thank you for that. You know, <laughs> um, but okay, um, Adam, why don't you introduce yourself as well? I mean, who who is Adam? Well, I'm Adam Clark. I actually work as a professor of theology at Xavier University. Um, I point everybody here to Theology Beer Camp, where you'll hear more about, you'll get to meet great people like Tim and Tripp. And also, 
I'm launching a podcast, Upsetting the Powers. You will oh. hear more about that at Theology Beer Camp. It may, we might have a pre-opening before that, but definitely by the time Theology Beer Camp rolls around, you'll get to enter into that and hear a lot of your, your favorite theologians speaking on Upsetting the Powers. I am... I didn't know about that. That's super exciting, especially because a lot of our audience, the way that we phrase it is that we've kind of left the basement of evangelicalism and want to explore the house of Christian thought. So podcasts like yours are just great places, I think, to enter into some of those rooms to unpack like, I didn't know this was ever here. <laughs> it's like, yes, right. it is. So I, I'm excited for that. All right. So we have intros. Let's get down to why I've called this meeting of the minds, because um, there's this there's this organization called the Center for Biblical Unity. Now, I'm going to read off of their website. Um, the, their website says, one race, one people, one savior, a place for respectful and... <laughs> Trip, I have to get... You can't laugh yet. Wait till I, I read the whole myself. thing. I muted myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll try it again. It says, one race, one people, one savior, a place for respectful and biblically faithful discussions about racial unity and justice. Okay. And then it says in the second paragraph, we believe that the solution to these issues must start with scripture. We strive to define terms according to scripture first, not culture. Terms like, quote, woke, white fragility, or whiteness have no place in the body of Christ and only cause her an increased distrust among believers. And in the very, very, very bottom, their endorsements, it says, as seen on Ali Stucky, pod, Ali Stucky's podcast and Alyssa Childers' podcast. So already we kind of have an idea of the direction we're heading in. So recently on their Instagram, <laughs> on their Instagram, they posted um, uh, a, a series of slides. And yeah, thank you, Trip. Uh, you're a great PowerPoint presenter. I want to point that out. And it says four Servant's reasons. <laughs> it says four reasons why black liberation theology is another gospel. Now, people sent this to me. And they were like, hey, can you respond to this? And I said, no, I can't because I'm not qualified to really respond to things like this. I've only read a little bit of James Cone. This is not my world, but I think I know someone who is. So I, I pulled together this conversation with myself, Trip, and Adam to kind of go through these four reasons and to really get really your thoughts, Adam, and then also Trip's just on like your response to it and 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 and, and what your thoughts are on it. So um, before we, we hop into number one, any thoughts so far on what I've explained in this conversation on, on this account? It sounds Constantinian, like, you know, meaning that Constantine, the whole idea of what is it? One race, one. Well, I, I can't even do the order that you did. There's a lot of ones. It's yeah. a one, one race, <laughs> one people, one savior. Right, 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 right. That's the imposition. That's the imperial imposition that the Emperor Constantine put on the Christian community, right? Like this idea of a oneness. Christianity started out in plurality, right? Like in terms of, I mean, think about it. You've, after the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, right? You have Peter going into Jerusalem, right? To set up the, um, the Jewish Christian church. Hmm. Later, you have... The Apostle Paul coming and meeting up with him, setting up the Gentile Christianity, right? That's one of the earliest divisions that occurs within the gospel. And people who were in the Jewish Christian church couldn't imagine someone being a Christian without knowing the Mosaic law, hmm. right? They couldn't imagine 
someone being a Christian without celebrating Passover or being circumcised, right? These are the early things in the Bible. So there was a plurality of Christianities, and they did not agree on what Christianity is. If there was always a human interpretation onto the faith, right? So we accept that in the early period, but now when it comes, you know, and even later you have what an Alexandrian Christianity in Egypt, Africa, you have an Antiochian Christianity, right? That's mm. modern day Turkey, right? Trying to work out this thing called the gospel, mm. even in, 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 um, Moving up until the Protestant world, you have Martin Luther, right, who protests against the Roman Church. Then you have Calvin, right? Then you have Zingli, mm-hmm. right? You have all of these different traditions and trajectories. The idea of Christianity as one is part of the problem. That's a mythology in and of itself. It's always been a plural. There's always been different lineages within Christianity itself. Hmm. It's never been one thing. But when people hear race, they get confused over that. But if you go back to the early period, even pre the development of race, there's always been a historical, cultural, and people-specific character to the Christianity that was there. You can see it all throughout the Gospels. Okay, that's interesting. So do you think that so, so when I see something like this on the surface, one race, one people, one see, I think, oh, unity, trying to get along. But mm-hmm. do you think that the, 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 the deeper element is, well, under what umbrella? Like, like, like under what unity? Is that kind of the point here? And you're pointing out that it's, it's kind of my, always been a little bit different historically? My, the, my point being is that there's always a human experience in which mm-hmm. the unity is being interpreted, right? Uh, yeah. That there's an erasure of a human experience when you talk about some forms of unity, right? I'm not saying there's no commonalities. They're looking at the same thing, but there's mm-hmm. always an interpretive process that goes into the way people are practicing and understanding that unity. That's why we have councils. That's why we have debates. That's why and the debates are coded within scripture itself, right? Think about if you're a Jewish Christian and someone comes to you and say they're, they're a follower of Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. They don't know the laws of Moses. The laws of Moses are not just sitting there proclamations. Those are like cosmic laws to keep the whole universe in balance, Right? right? That's a scary thing for someone to come into the Christian fold for a Jewish Christian to say, well, who's this? Like, why are you selling baby Passover? That's, you know, and to bypass that, right? Or to not be circumcised. Mm. If it wasn't for Paul, Christianity would probably be a sect within Judaism. Mm. It probably would have never broken out mm. when he redefined it and said that circumcision is not of the body, it's of the heart. Right. Right? That right. made it, gave it its universal character. But, and think how ironic this is. The person that redefines defined Christianity and gave it its dominant interpretation was the only person that did not physically meet Jesus. Mm. Right? Jesus' biological brother, right? He, he wasn't with that. He thought you had to be a Jew. Peter, the rock, he, he was with the Jewish Christians. It wasn't until Paul came along. Hmm. So there's all these debates among Christians. So much so they got they got angry at each other. They fell out with each other. They went into different parts of the world saying, you do you, I'm going to do me. So all of this, but they're interpreting it very differently. They're hmm. looking at the resurrection of this risen Christ right. 
and they're trying to process it in the context of their experience. Got it. That is, that's really amazing. Thank you. That's, that's very helpful. Okay, cool. Um, I want to hop in because there's four points to get to, and then we'll start unpacking them. So here hey, is, Tim, what's up? Can I ask you something? Yeah. Um, when I see a, uh, the slide, four reasons why black liberation theology is another gospel. And then here, their mission statement. <clears throat> I was thinking of uh, the, maybe the four reasons, maybe because it's part of their public apology for being committed to an alternative gospel of white Christian supremacy and nationalism. Then maybe slide one is, uh, um, but well, look, my bad. In fact, uh, the gospel is not otherworldly. Number two, my bad. <laughs> the gospel is not actually just about the individual escaping the planet. Number three, my bad. Uh, well, it turns out salvation is not really blind to structures and systemic sin. And point four, will you forgive me? Slaveholder religion is not abolitionist religion. That's what I'm guessing with a charitable uh, hermeneutic that that's where we're going. So I've well, had it. <laughs> let's find out what's behind, what's behind slide number one, Trip. Why don't you get us there? And I'll, I'll read it out loud for the class to hear. All right. One, it puts race first, not the gospel. Trip, you were really close. I got to be honest, but, but, but no, you weren't. All right. Cone used the terms. This is James Cone, the, the, I think it's safe to say the father of black liberation theology. Um, Cone used the terms blackness and whiteness to refer to both ideology and skin color long before critical race theory was a formal framework. For example, a black person participating in ways that Cone would deem oppressive to the black community would be participating in whiteness. And a white person working to eradicate the oppression of the black community is working within their blackness. To participate in whiteness is to participate in the oppression of black people. The ground of Cohn's approach to doctrine is to see everything through the lens of oppression. He believes that to understand any issue of theology, we must view it through the experience of oppressed people. In other words, through the lens of the black experience. <sighs> All right. Yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, well, well, just as I, I mentioned, the idea of, well, let's, let's, the disciples themselves were not unified, hmm. right? The people that actually physically saw the resurrection were not unified in what the, the meaning of the resurrection was. And that type of difference of interpretation, right, carries throughout the tradition, as I just explained, from looking at the difference between Paul and a James and a Peter from looking at the different types of even the um, centers of Christianity, being in Antioch and Alexandria and Carthage, right? Like all of these different center locations, it was a develop Christianity is a developing tradition and it didn't become, and the idea of an official unity didn't come until it became part of the imperial class. Mm. And when you talk about that, the language of empire is the language of unity that comes into Christianity through Constantine. That's not to say there's no unity. I mean, you could talk about Pentecost as a unity, right? Like in terms of people of diverse languages, one spirit and that type of thing. But it didn't erase their distinctiveness with the spirit, right? They still went back to their own nationalities, their own languages. They just had a, had a common orientation toward the spirit, mm. right? But it's not one language that they constantly speak. It's just a commonality of reference points. So 
if you can see that, right, people get kind of blinded by the idea of race, right? Because people don't think through race in a very intelligent or rational manner. It's such a, such a loaded type of thing. Right. When Cohn talks about blackness and whiteness, he's using them metaphorically, not literally, hmm. right? So he's, it's historical metaphorical, meaning that the idea of blackness and whiteness in the context of black theology is like an analogy, it's an analogy for a certain form of social location. Either blackness represents being located at the bottom, right? And whiteness signifies privilege. So when he's talking about blackness and whiteness, he's talking about a certain location in the context of American empire, mm. right? So he's using racial metaphors. I mean, and let me back up a little bit. The job of a theologian is to translate the gospel for contemporary ears, right? Mm -hmm. We know that race wasn't a factor in biblical times because race was just constructed about 500 years ago. We're talking about a 2,000-year-old tradition. So what he's doing, he's trying to translate that. What would these metaphors mean in the context? I want to use these, these I want to translate the gospel through these metaphors to make it make sense in the context of American empire, right? Mm. Because Roman empire had different, different types of coding, right? It, in, the, in the context of Roman empire, it was much more of a location about, it's harder for a rich man to get to, the, through the, to get to heaven than a camel is to get to the eye of a needle, right? In mm. terms of that. Right, so he's looking at a certain location of somebody. He's equating whiteness with that location. Mm. Whiteness is like the rich man mm. who comes to Nicodemus and says, "What do I have to do to be saved?" Well, you have to be born again. Mm. He says, "Well, I get into my mother's stomach." No, it's a metaphor. Mm. You have to be totally transformed. So Cohen is using that same metaphorical language, right? to apply to the racial situation in the context of the United States because Christianity ignored race, right? The most visible form of suffering in the context of America, Christian theologians did not speak to. And he's like, how can you miss this? Mm. How, why do you talk about equality, but you don't mention the type of suffering that happens in the context of the color bar? He's like, how can you miss that? It's right in front of your eyes. And he's shocked at the fact that Christianity isn't interpreted in light of the most visible form of suffering that is an ever-present reality in the context of the United States. Mm. What, what American theologians, when Cohen was coming up, they take German theologians' ideas and maybe French theologians, and they wouldn't take the American situation seriously. Mm. So he's trying to get people to be grounded in the American situation to say, what does the gospel have to say to the American context? Mm. And you can't talk about the American context without talking about the impact of race. Mm. What do you think, Tripp? Um, well, I, I really like what Adam pointed out. And yeah. the, there's a there's a there's a bit of it that may not it, people may not have picked up on uh, it, it, on, on even how he was reframing it. Like part of what you see in that uh, example, right, is a kind of bastardizing of what 
Cohn was doing and pointing out blackness and whiteness as uh, not primarily right about the, the pigmentation of your skin, but about ideological power structures that determine your material well-being. Mm. And then actually where you would locate yourself isn't about exactly where you're born. It's where you show up in those systems and structures on how are you using your agency? And if you're using your agency in the way slaveholding religion did, uh, on, and again, then yes, that gets located as whiteness in his theology. But he's wanting to tell the gospel to a country that is now a global empire post-World War II. He's wanting to tell the gospel it, that that post-World War II is where we're exporting um, capitalistic, imperially friendly versions of religion around the globe, where other liberation theologies are emerging right in the global south. Mm. And then we have this picture post-World War II of America being these back, these this picture of freedom. And then you have all these soldiers coming back from World War II where they had experiences of equality on the battlefield and they show back up to a segregated home. And then mm. you see the same I I issues coming back up again, right? In in Vietnam and a lot of the Black Power movement and the resistance to be becoming, you know, essentially cannon fodder for us prolonging this Cold War when you don't see equality sitting there in the world. And I, and, I, and it's that that point that you get this uh, this the language coming out of the Black Power movement in Cone wrestled with theologically. And uh, it, but it's important to note he uh, abstracts individuals from the power. Right. And in it, it, that's that's actually what Paul does. What is it Paul con is condemning sin, law, death? What is he calling out principalities and powers? Hmm. And yes, if you are on the take and are born benefiting it like uh, Nicodemus, Adam gave an example, or Zacchaeus or the rich young ruler, then what does it mean to choose solidarity with the gospel? It involves choosing solidarity with the gospel. Um, but, uh, that, that is the, 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 one of the normal habits of a kind of reductive account of the gospel that you see in a lot of evangelicalism is to turn principalities and powers and sin, law, and death into things you're either in or out of, right. uh, and then salvation is get escaping this reality as opposed to what the powers that entangle us as victims and as violators that we're mm -hmm. being redeemed from. And that's a much more biblical image. So like the funny thing to me is a lot of the language you hear coming here is they're doing to James Cone, the same kind of reworking you have to do to the teachings of Jesus and Paul to mm -hmm. make them imperially compliant, uh, supremacist blind uh, version of the gospel. Mm. Good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, the first thing that stuck out to me was just in, in bold. It puts race first, not the gospel. And I have to ask, like, well, what is the gospel? I always I find this term being used in these spaces, and it usually, like what you kind of hinted at, trip usually means something like you 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 have a certain belief that gets you out of going to the bad place and gets you going to the good place when you die. That's pretty much the gospel, you know. And then, yeah, the stuff that Jesus talked about is nice, but you know, the key part is saving souls. So um, anyway, yeah, I really appreciated both of what you had to say. I think that's very helpful and, and eye-opening. Um, just so we know, what what are the years where James Cone is writing? So we have like like what what part in history we're talking about here when James Cone is doing the work that he's doing? Uh, 1969, his first book till 2000 and hmm. I think it's 12. Wow. 
So okay. Yeah. So so pretty recent, frankly. So he. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His whole corpus. He started. He started his first book is 1969. Wow. His last book was shortly before he transitioned. So that's around. I think it was two thousand. I think it's 2012. Okay. Good to know. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Let's go to number two. Uh, so trip again. Sorry, swing and a miss. Uh, your original uh, hunch was not correct here. So at number two, it says the gospel is not for everyone. Cohn's framework doesn't accept a God who could be for the liberation of the oppressed and for the salvation of the oppressor. Quote, we will not accept a God who is on everybody's side, which means that God loves everybody in spite of who they are and is working through the acceptable channels of society, of course, to reconcile all persons to the Godhead, unquote, page 66. Cohn's theology does not allow for a God who could be working for the redemption of an oppressor. It rejects the idea of a God who could love white oppressors the same as he would love oppressed blacks. Page 66. Yeah, these are these are like real terrible translations <laughs> of Cohn. Um, the whole framework is off. Uh, well, first, I'll talk about it from a theological standpoint. Cone makes the Cone and other liberation theologians, because we're talking about black liberation theology specifically, which fits into the general theme of liberation that's a worldwide phenomenon, right? So the idea of God's love is connected to God's wrath, right? God actually chastises those who he loves, right? So that you don't love an abuser and a victim of abuse the same way. Right, mm-hmm. like it's it's the victim of the abuse, right? Gets a different form of love. A guy can love the abuser, but there's going to be chastisement, hopefully jail time, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? right? And penalty for that. So the, the 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 idea that love looks it the the form of love, right? That seems to be assumed in there is like an affirmation. That the idea that there, that God is affirming what you're doing, but the gospel is about affirmation and amendment, and mm. people forget about the amendment, the amendment of life, right? So that all throughout the Bible, right? Especially if we look, and it's, and I'm talking more on a personal level, so let's take it to a social level. If you look at the Exodus story, which liberation theology is based upon, yeah, right. You have two people in conflict. Pharaoh's folks and Moses' folks, right? If God loves everybody equally, right? <laughs> There's a difference in the way he treats the oppressors and the oppressed. Mm-hmm. And that idea goes down. So love historically takes the form of justice, right? Love in history takes the form of justice. That is historically pushing the oppressed the way you love them into freedom. Mm. That's what liberation is. Liberation isn't a cancellation of love. It's the form of love in history. So to love somebody is to will their freedom, Mm. right? So that those who are on the opposite side of freedom get the wrath or the amendment, right? In terms of that, you have to transform yourself to be in solidarity with those who are God is trying to free, mm. right? And this goes throughout, and the Hebrew prophets do the same thing. Once the, once the, the Jewish people stop becoming nomads and get a kingship structure, right? Then you have the rise of the prophets 
who condemns the nation of Israel for breaking covenants and not treating the widows, the poor, and the marginalized, right? So then you, the prophets warn about God's wrath, right? On Israel, God is going to chastise Israel because he's loving these people into freedom. Mm. And that same thing gets picked up by Jesus in the Christian Testament. And he just reflects his own tradition, his own ancestorship, right? Jesus, as people, some people forget, is a Jew. Mm. He's reworking the tradition he's born into. Mm. And he never, you know, he never really thought about actually a new religion. He thought he was revitalizing the tradition he was born into. Mm-hmm. Right, Christianity saw itself in in the early stages as this a revitalization of Judaism, not something separate. So he saw himself as the fulfillment of what's happening. Mm. Right, so that he's just taking this idea of love and talking about that love takes the form of justice in history. Right, so that justice. That justice should be the state of affairs. And what happens in the United States that Christians, white Christians, have affirmed that people have equal souls, right? But they're not socially equal. Mm. And then you have people in the civil rights movement that say if we have spiritual equality, spiritual equality should lead to social equality. Mm. You can't just affirm my soul and ignore my body. Right. Right. There should be a translation between the spiritual equality and social equality. And that's what King used to try to talk about the way Christianity should be performed and practiced in the context of American empire. Mm-hmm. You, one of the things that uh, Cohn does um, in uh, in this book, Cross and the Lynching Tree, that kind of mm-hmm. pulls out this theme is he draws a connection between the cross of Christ and the lynching tree in American history. And I think that's a, actually a really helpful thing to notice, right? Because so often, uh, especially in white churches uh, growing up in, in the South in a Baptist context, I heard the phrase, the gospel of Christ crucified all the time, right? And if you were like, we preach the gospel, but not any gospel, the gospel of Christ crucified. And it's like in that space, like what are you erasing in those words, Christ crucified, uh, that makes your gospel something uh, that, that that leaves off the table uh, the, the kind of material transformation on behalf of justice that God declares for God's people uh, in scripture uh, and, and models, right, for the world in, uh, in, in the Exodus. And, and that's it. Uh, Christ crucified. By who? The state. The state lynches Jesus. And James Cone points that out because if you can erase the actual material body of Christ in his context from the gospel, then whose bodies do you think you're erasing now from our ability Mm. to tell the gospel? The people that die cross dead in our world. If Mm. you can tell the gospel without the uh, itinerant Jewish preacher executed by the state resisting the powers and proclaiming their condemnation because of the coming of God's kingdom, if you can do it without all that, right? then you're probably doing the same in your own embodiment of it. And it's really hard for anyone to honestly say uh, at this point, looking back in American church history and go, oh yeah, white church has been rocking it. 
you know, just blowing up with fidelity uh, to the crucified one. No, like we are faithful in plenty of ways that we're comfortable with our privilege and power, but mm. we were blind strategically, uh, institutionally, ideologically to the ways that our power personally and structurally uh, is being used to put people on crosses, real and metaphorical today. And, and when Cone raises this before us, it is easy. I remember the first time I read James Cone, got mad mm. and threw it, like to go, man, this is exaggerated. This is, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But when you sit with our history and you take seriously the ways that, uh, especially when people are patient with you, that you have uh, these these, uh, uh, kind of blindness to racism and all of its neighboring ideologies, then all of a sudden that recognition that you were silencing the actual materiality of where God was incarnate in Christ and came to the cross, you realize what, Oh, what are the parts of our materiality today I'm blind and silencing in my attempt to tell the gospel? And so that condemnation, as uh, if you're just taking the story of race in America, is not a condemnation uh, because the gospel's not for you. That condemnation's a prerequisite for encountering a good news big enough to tell the truth about a world where uh, white supremacy still reigns in the life of Christ Church. And yeah. And I think that connection that Cone develops between the cross and the lynching tree is a helpful way for people, if they're wrestling with it new, to go back and read the stories and notice, like, how have I learned to read them where Jesus's marginalized identity and the violence of the state has been exercised from the story of the gospel? Yeah, I mean, le- legitimately, the first time I read uh, The Cross and Lynching Tree, there are parts where I, I wept. I mean, I was I, I had an audio book. I would listen to it. It, it completely mm-hmm. shifted uh, how I thought about the crucifixion, also how I thought about, about the black struggle in America as well. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, Tripp, I really resonate with what you said about, like, that sense of feeling condemnation, but it led to repentance, that honestly leads a lot to my work now. You know, I see a lot of the work that I do as part of my repentance for trying to make the wrongs of my own history, you know, right. One point I I wanted to pull out of this that may be a little more, a little more lighthearted, but I got to say like point two, it says the gospel is not for everyone. Is she talking about Calvinism? Like, like what? There's a lot of worldviews here that, you know, that, 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 that say this, that, that we're not picked out as being another gospel. I mean, I mean, uh, evangelicalism is incredibly exclusive. The gospel yeah, is not absolutely. for anyone. It's not for anyone who doesn't pray the prayer and, and receive Christ in, in, in their worldview. So I did find that a little ironic, like, well, I mean, like, I mean, I, uh, I guess, I mean, I, I guess you could twist it to say this, but I can give you some clear examples of people in your faith tradition who would tell you, sorry, you're just not elect. Like, just deal with it. There is no hope. You are wicked, vile, you're a reprobate, and, and you know, chaff for the fire is where you're headed. Um, one question. But you're chaff for to- the fire for the glory of God, Tim. For the glory right. of God. Dot, dot, dot. Okay. For the glory of God. Because he is yeah. good. He, he's a good, good father. Um, okay. Um, Adam, I had a qu- one follow-up question for you. And I think we kind of answered it, but just to really spell it out. It says here in the bottom part, Cohen's theology does not allow for a God who would be working for the redemption of an oppressor. Um, I want to clarify that. I think it's, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think it's safe to say that maybe a perspective of Cohen would be, well, if there's repentance, of course there's redemption for an oppressor. If they turn right. from their oppression and, 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 and go towards, you know, the, 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 the oppressed, so to speak, is that kind of the perspective here of James Cohen? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where they get this from. Like this is not, as I said before, 
Um, here, here's a better way of here's another way of saying this because this was actually a debate within the within black theology in the early period. Um, some people believed that Cone overemphasized the gospel of liberation without talking about the gospel of reconciliation. Okay. So there's a guy named Diotis Roberts who just recently passed, actually. He's a black theologian also. Um, he said that, and he was more of a disciple of King when Cone was being more influenced by Malcolm X. So he said, look, I like what you're doing with this black theology thing and this liberation motif, but we also have to say that reconciliation is more central to the gospel or as central as liberation. And what Cohn responded, he says, I support reconciliation, but liberation is prior to reconciliation, mm. right? So what he wants to do is that if you're talking about in the racialized context, he would talk about black people have to have, be liberated and white people have to have their own liberation. And then the reconciliation comes, mm. right? Mm -hmm. you, you can't reconcile... You can't reconcile people who are consumed in two toxic cultures. Right. 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 So that there has to be transformation on both communities. And now he would talk about a plurality of communities. We have to be reconciled. We have to be liberated from anti-blackness, anti-womanhood, anti-queerness. We need to be reconciled from anti-imperial stuff. We need to be liberated from all of that before reconciliation, human reconciliation can, can occur. Mm. So what he would say is that liberation is prior to reconciliation. Because if you actually have people at the, at the table of human brother and sisterhood who have not been liberated, you're going to just start a food fight. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Well, you know, to answer your question, uh, you know, where do they get this from, this idea? I have a working theory here. So um, I'm pretty tapped into evangelical circles still just because of the work that I have to do. And there is this um, appropriation, as we all know, the term woke. Uh, and there's a, a mega church pastor, Ed Young, um, pretty well-known guy who's doing a whole series on wokeism. It's actually abhorrent. It's, it's, it's violent, frankly. But he mentions that if you are in the woke cult, quote unquote, I even hate saying it like that, that there is no forgiveness for you. There's no repentance. You're just automatically always condemned. And I wonder, because again, they use the same phrase, uh, the Biblical Center for Unity uses the same framework in their on their website about how terms like woke have no place in the gospel. I wonder if they're drawing from that um, you know, far right ideological appropriation of the term to then kind of stick it in here. Like, see, like liberation theology, there's no hope for you if you're an oppressor. Okay. I, I just wonder if, if there's a connection there. No, you're right. Like woke and critical race theory, two things they they define in ways that the people that use them don't 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 even understand them that way. Right. And then they 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 built a straw person and they and they blow the house down and think they won an argument. <laughs> right, right. Well, really, those terms don't even mean the same thing. Right. I mean, wokeism is something that came from the Black Lives Matter movement that had to talk about an understanding of the racial dimensions of the state apparatus, the racist dimensions of the state apparatus. It had to do with, it really was a form of political consciousness, right? Now, black theology doesn't use the term woke, per se. I right. mean, probably an earlier term was conscious hmm. or awareness, right? 
being aware, being conscious. It wasn't woke. Woke is like a newer type of version, which is probably not as comprehensive. But consciousness is just being consciousness of your history, of your culture, and being aware, right? Which actually is something that is at the center of the Christian tradition with the contemplative tradition, right? Mm. Awareness is about awareness of God's presence, right? Mm. Liberation theologians go further to talk about not only do we have to be aware of God's presence, but we have to be aware of the different interpretive apparatuses of how God's presence is being understood, Mm. right? So it's not just that. It's being aware of the multiple different interpretive processes Mm. in which God's presence is being put to you. And in light of that, we have to do, we have to have a healthy, I'm using kind of a heretical term, atheism, meaning that not a, not a disbelief in God as supernatural, but specific forms of theism that have been unhealthy mm. and oppressive. Mm. So that is the, or, or another way of saying this is idolatries. Yeah. So that the, yeah. the, the, the God of American Christianity has been a false idol because it's not a adequate translation of the biblical God. Yeah, yeah. That's right? Good. So what the black theology try, does is try to say that American Christianity is unbiblical. If you talked about the biblical Jesus and the biblical God, it would translate into this racial situation differently, and you would see solidarities with the poor and the oppressed and not solidarities with Trump. Mm. It's good. Uh, Trip, did you want to add anything to that, or do you want to move on to point three? Oh, I'm um, here. I'll, I'll throw three up there. The, the only thing that that kind of popped in my mind is just the idea that um, God doesn't love the oppressor. When uh, I mean, the entire gospel story is one Jesus telling it to him until they killed him, and God, uh, the resurrection is an affirmation. There's a hope beyond your clear condemnation uh, of sin. So uh, it's. It, it, it's just one of those things where you realize uh, it, could could the story of like uh, Scrooge in a Christmas Carol end where he's been haunted by the sins of his past, understanding the present and what a world looks like if he doesn't change, and he falls down, you know, in his grave, gets up the next morning, sees Tiny Tim, and just jump kicks him, right? Like, are you like, wow, this is the meaning of Christmas? I mean, it's like that's what uh, what you're being asked to to believe that like that salvation doesn't actually lead uh, to mm. uh, reconciliation, restoration, and justice uh, becoming b- becoming possible. Uh, anyway, it that's uh, good. but. You know, it yeah, it, it fits what the uh, next one is, which sadly uh, was not on any of my predictions. So nope. And also, I just want to clarify: BLT is uh, Black Liberation Theology, not Bacon, Lettuce, and Tomato. Just so we're all <laughs> clear about that. So, all right, number three, it presents two Christianities. BLT, Black Liberation Theology, refuses any concepts that may be oppressive to Black people and takes a revolutionary stand against whiteness. 
by violence if necessary. BLT represents all oppressed people as all oppression can be seen, ultimately as the narrative of black people. Cone creates two separate groups constructing two different versions of Christianity. One is white and wicked, while the other is black, righteous, and oppressed. And God is only on the side of the oppressed, page 26. These two Christianities cannot coexist. One will destroy the other. Either white American theology will continue its injustice against blacks, or black will rise up and, I'm sorry, or black people will rise up and destroy the former. For Cone, blacks and whites, the oppressed and the oppressors can't have the same God, and the right thing to do is to destroy the God of the white American theology, page 63. <laughs> yeah, well, is the Christianity of Martin Luther King the same as the Christianity of Bull Connor, who put him in jail, right? Is the Christianity of Denmark Vesey the same as the Christianity as the person who enslaved him? Or is the Christianity of Nat Turner the same? You see, that the idea that there's always been a plurality of Christianities, the idea is like what's most authoritative and what's more consistent with the biblical Christianity that you're claiming. And the claim of Black theology is that the American Christianity, the white American Christianity has been unbiblical. And that Christianity works from the bottom up, not the top down. So that that's what the metaphor, the black is a groundedness and a solidarity with those on the underside of reality. It's not just a people specific. One of three people that, one of the misunderstandings that people come to my class, they think that black Christianity is a people specific Christianity or just something that the black church does. Hmm. But Cohen had a much wider understanding that black theology was a world faith, hmm. meaning that it's that the metaphors, and he, he was specifically talking about the American context because race functions differently in the American context than it does in other parts. But he said, look, if I'm in India, I might not call it black theology. I might call it um, Dali theology. Right, mm -hmm. the Dalis are the underclass in India. If I'm in Korea, I might look at the underclass in Korea because race functions differently in Korea. So he says, I'm talking about the North American context where race functions in a very specific way. So black as a as a qualifier for a theology is a way is a signifier for the bottom, the underside, the marginalized. But he says that that metaphor might switch if I'm in a different context where it doesn't have the same history. But the, because America came into existence as a slave society, right, for hundreds and hundreds of years, yeah. that's the reason why we use blackness as a metaphor to signify that, because we're identifying with those who were marginalized by slavery and its subsequent traditions that have kept a people in place. And we're looking at the movement of God as God works through these people to try to witness to the world. Right? So that's what the blackness is a metaphor for. Mm. Right? So in one way, you can say it's not Christianity. But if it's not Christianity, the authentic Christianity is certainly from the bottom up, not the top down. Mm. 
Yeah. In the other bit, I would just say about the violence part. Um, yeah. You, I, I mean, I, I know how this is because I've thought this when previously, but once you notice how much violence exists in the system to hold it in place as it is, the idea that uh, the appearance of violence uh, into the relationship occurs when the oppressed fights back is a, is just naive. Yeah. Um, and this is not a statement where I'm saying like, oh, go justify like justify violence or whatever. Um, that is, uh, and and my uh, my process liberationist leanings make me uh, uh, committed to a kind of uh, resistance via nonviolence. But the, yeah. It, it, if you just know how much power poverty in the state do uh, at at coercing uh, the poor and oppressed into lives that lack the flourishing God intended when they bear God's image, then violence doesn't arrive when resistance becomes uh, physical. Uh, right. Violence is what you're born into, right? So a slave revolt doesn't make uh, – that was not the origin of violence. It was a response. And when you see – uh, be it demonstration of data, uh, or uh, or ha or when you look at patterns of policing and poverty and all these kinds of things, if you cannot even imagine for a second that there's something at play other than individuals' failed personal responsibility, then what you really have is a really narrow, thin doctrine of sin that enables you to sleep good uh, in. Um, it, you, in a theology fit for a plantation. So that's, that's what it generates. And like to isolate that, that to, to pull that statement out as like a, a justification for violence uh, and not begin by going, I recognize as an inheritor of the white Christian experience in North America that we sang hymns with our slaves in the midst, and we taught them certain parts of the Bible so they would shut their mouths and do their work. Like you need to give some preface statement other yeah. than pointing at occasional black violence and protest. It's like people that equate uh, a rock going through a, a, a Starbucks window uh, with the mur state murdering uh, George Floyd. Like they're not the same thing. Uh, Jan mm. 6th is, uh, is not the same thing as like some, some busted coffee shop windows. And if it is, then um, you know, find an exorcist. That's probably the easiest thing. Trip, could I add one thing? One yeah. thing. It's curious that people who make this claim don't ever say that about George Washington, right? They don't say be not. Why was George Washington violent, right? They don't. They don't hold George Washington to the standard. They don't hold Woodrow Wilson, World War One, or Franklin Delano Roosevelt, World War Two, or even George Bush in Iraq to the same question, even though he was an evangelical Christian, right? Mm -hmm. That it's only marginalized people who get this critique of violence, the use of the use of violence. They don't, they don't use this type of nonviolent type of blanket, the, uh, the unbiblicalness of violence, right? They don't, they don't raise that about George Washington was unbiblical. He was unchristian for using violence against the British. They mm -hmm. don't use that against George Bush. They certainly wouldn't use it against Trump. So when he when he killed somebody in um, was I think it was Iraq, right? But uh, so to me, the very use of that that critique has its own hypocrisy because it's only noticed when it did, when violence it comes out of the bodies of the oppressed, mm. but not the oppressor class. 
This was actually, so I think, well, I think, I know out of the three of us, I am by far the newest to this conversation and my brain's still the most formed by evangelical thinking. And I remember uh, reading Black Theology and Black Power on audiobook. And again, I think I think it's in that book where, where Cohen uses the example of like, so it's not violence to have the boot on our neck, but it's wrong and violent if we push the boot off of our neck. That kind of the idea of, mm-hmm. of, of showing how like, like how, how, like what you both have said so well, how the state justifies violence and people like me who grew up in it, we just see it as, as, as how the world is. But whenever there's a revolt from that oppression, suddenly it's too far. The violence is wrong, both sides, et cetera. And, and, I'm still working through that. Like you said, Trip. I'm still trying to like figure out like how I sit with some of these things. And I, I also want to lean nonviolent and find better ways forward that, 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 um, that aren't chaotic. Right. But at the same time, reading James Cone really shifted like how I saw even like looting, like you said, you know, like throwing a rock through a Starbucks window compared to uh, the actual murder of George Floyd, right? And how they're they're made to be equal in our society, but have not only very different uh, contexts and reasons, but also very different impacts. You know, Starbucks is not a sentient being made in the Imago Dei. It's literally brick and mortar, right? Um, and so anyway, I'm just, I'm riffing off of this because I think a lot of the audience when we read this point three, we go, yeah, like they, they, how can they approve violence? That's crazy. Until you really think about it on a deeper level and think about about what is normalized in our society versus what is not, and how 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 the violence is weaponized to either be uh, beneficial uh, to the empire or used as a tactic to keep the the revolution, so to speak, or or the resistance um, at bay. Because oh, look, they use violence now. Therefore, it's automatically wrong and should be stopped. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm still thinking, still thinking through those things. But by far, that part of of uh, theology of black power really was like, oh, I've never. Of course, I haven't. But I've never considered this point before, and it's something I have to really. It stuck with me, you know, for a long time. All right. Um. All right. Grand finale. Bust out all the fireworks. We've made it. Uh. Let's see. Point four. It, here it is. Tri- trip again. You were really close. Like you were so in the ballpark, but you just weren't there yet. So number four, it redefines sin. Okay. It redefines sin. So I just want to just um, read it kind of point one, point two, point three. So the, the topic is four reasons why black liberation theology is another gospel. Point one, it puts race first, not the gospel. Point two, it says the gospel is not for everyone. Point three, it presents two Christianities. And now point four, it redefines sin. Cone contends that it is the responsibility of the oppressed to determine what is sin and how their oppression will be relieved. Page 53, quote, therefore, if blacks are to have freedom, they must take it by any means necessary, unquote, page 96. The quote means put forward to end oppression can only be judged as sinful by the oppressed group itself. Again, Cohen puts forth an idea of separate Christianities, white and black. The result this time is differing definitions of sin. Um, oppressors, he writes, are, quote, in no position to speak about the sinfulness of the oppressed, unquote. That's page 57. While BLT, Black Liberation Theology, affirms that all people are sinners, 
page 57, it gives no allowance for blacks and whites to share the same definition of sin, page 57. Cohen asserts that, quote, sin is a concept which is meaningful only within the context of a Christian community, unquote, page 57. Since white theology is not truly Christian in nature, he argues it has no true understanding of sin. The understanding of sin is reserved for the community of the oppressed, in other words, for true Christians. Whew, I need a drink. All right. <laughs> Go ahead, Adam. It's all yours. Well, you know, the the reason why it's written in – well, first of all, sin is always an interpretation in any historical context. But the reason why he wrote it as that polemic is because white theology has, all, ha, has historically defined – any movement for black freedom is sinful, right? Like, for example, don't be angry about your oppression. To be a good Christian is not to be angry, mm. right? To, do, to be a good Christian is not to resist the, the police, right? It's always to conform. So that white theology has been used as an instrument for pacification and domestication of black populations, so the idea of liberation theology in terms of redefining sin, or he talks about it as the prerogative of the oppressed, is a way to try to, it's almost an iconoclastic way of trying to clear the space of white interpretations that anything, any type of prophetic movement or any type of wrath or anger is not seen as sinful. See? That if you put your boot on my neck for decades and decades and I get angry, I'm the sinful one, but you're the okay one. You're the one who's, who's a th who, who, who has, who's been sanctioned by God to do that. Yeah. So part of what the liberationist moment is, is to kind of do a space clearing and to look at what's happening with sinfulness and try to say, well, how do we interpret evil and sin in the context of our historical experience? And it's the people that put their boot on our necks. That's the sinful part. It's not my response to that. Mm. Right? So the, so the way he frames it is that whatever is dehumanizing, or really, you know, he would make a claim that modern theology is usually a conversation between faith and reason. So you have this faith and science. Liberation theology is a conversation between faith and justice, mm. right? So that what becomes sinful is all the processes that lead to non-personhood or dehumanization, and that's what's sinful. So anything that diminishes the humanity of others is what's seen as sinful, not the response to dehumanization. Now, every response is not an okay response. I don't want to make it sound like you do anything. But people get more angry, as we talked about with violence, at the response than the foot, right? And he's right. trying to shift the focus, the culpability, right? The responsibility off the people who are oppressed and put it on the people who are exploit the exploiters, that they should share the moral burden of not being exploiters and oppressors, not the people who have been victimized by this. Mm. Right. So usually in evangelical communities, 
I've heard it this way in terms of the race discussion. They say, the problem we have is not a, a, a race problem. We have a sin problem, uh-huh. <laughs> right? That's right. So that's the deflection that goes on. So they separate racism from sinfulness and use sinfulness as a deflection of racism, while Black theology says, look, racism is a dominant form of sin in the context of the American empire. Yes. Right? It's an expression of sinfulness. It's an expression of alienization. It's an expression of dehumanization, right? While it becomes like a way of deflecting from racism by saying sinfulness so that all we have to do is have a personal relationship with God, right? And then suddenly the sin, the racism will melt away. Right, right. right. Well, I mean, there, there is this, I, I've asked the question before on my own, you know, uh, platform where I've said, I, like, you know, Ed Young again, go back to that sermon about wokeism. You know, he talks about how Jesus Christ is the answer, but what he really means is convert to white evangelical theology and somehow Absolutely. racism will go away, which of course, historically, the opposite is true. Like white evangelicalism has been at the forefront of fighting desegregation. I mean, I, they've been at the forefront of, 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 of Jim Crow laws and so on and so forth. So even history shows that, that, that if Ed Young got what he wanted, it would be a terrible idea. Uh, it would only exasperate the racial, uh, you know, uh, the racism issue that we have even now in America. So it yeah, is very the, interesting. The most violent form of slavery was in the Bible Belt. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Do you think there's a connection between the inability to conceive of sin uh having a relational and material dimension? Uh, it, uh, like th- that it's intimately connected I think because like just look at evangelical responses to an itty bitty bit of debt forgiveness, right? Like they blow their biscuits and they're like this is undermining personal responsibility and you and you know and then you're like hey uh, if like God suggested it in the Bible, and I actually and uniquely commanded it, and it wasn't just a portion of the debt from an exploitative higher ed system that baby boomers inherited a beautiful gift and then corrupted it and pillaged the futures of their children, but um, but like a, a resetting of property and inheritance uh, to an equitable way such that families have enough land to generate sustainable life and work for their whole family. Like that's what's actually the Jubilee is, right? And which oddly enough, Jesus said he was coming to do. And then his congregants tried to throw him off a cliff. But the, the, the I just say that because if you hear James Cone and you're like, Oh, I'm getting uncomfortable. I, I have a sin problem, not a race problem, sir. And then you're like, well, we have forgiveness of debt. And you're like, that's not biblical. I'm against it because personal responsibility, you know, like all those kind of responses or it's like you're sitting there and you you've managed to, to squeeze the Bible into about 14 verses. Uh, and, and you're like these 14 verses taken out of context and set in the, the guise and shine of freedom, love and liberty in American way can uh, then erase. I don't know, God taking sides, God forgiving debts, redistributing land and making proclamations of justice. You can even mute 90% of what Jesus talks about or the fact that he sends the powerful away, sad, empty handed, frustrated until they kill him. Like it's one of those moments where you're just like, I don't, 
I don't know what to tell you. Maybe there are. Maybe this is a very different vision of Christianity. I'm just guessing like if we were Venn diagramming our five biggest deep commitments, like Jesus might have something in common with the liberationist paradigm, but the, uh, uh, you know, uh, slaveholder religion, uh, uh, light, I guess, since or semi-slaveholder religion, if we're uh, pulling a Biden, uh, is is you know just it's got a, it's got a little bitty overlap. Called you know God made you, and that's awesome. But outside of that, <laughs> it's that seems that's, a bit stretchy. That is, you just exposed in a beautiful, hilarious monologue. The the real problem with white evangelical theology. It is all over the place, but it masquerades itself as the true gospel, as I'm just reading the Bible, as the Bible is clear, as biblical value. So they take terms that seem very cut and dry. And like you said, Trip, they they pull maybe total 20 verses, maybe, out of their context, out of their cultural moment, out of any kind of framework, they slap it on to their sermons and they call it the Bible. And then they use it to argue for, honestly, at this point, far right political ideologies that do so much harm, not only to, to the black community, but also to poor whites and many other people as well, frankly. And I, one example I want to draw from is I spent an hour and a half with uh, another um, uh, Instagram account called God is not given. Janice runs the account. She's great. Um, and we went through the Ed Young sermon line by line and responded to it line because I suffer for my community. OK, I, I bear my cross daily. I <laughs> suffer for for the people who, who, who just can't stand it. And the whole sermon. <laughs> thank you. <sir. laughs> I, I'm not I'm not trying to brag. I am humble bragging. So I really appreciate that. But um, the whole sermon Ed, this is the lead pastor talking about, you know, his terrible version of vocalism. Um, he, he says it's all over the place, but one thing he did was he used one Bible verse the entire time from Ephesians. It was like the most, it was, it was like, he closed his eyes and just like stopped his finger while sifting through. It was like, okay, we'll make this Bible verse work. And, but the whole sermon was about biblical values and standing for God, but there was no scripture actually used. And people, they buy this, like they buy this hook, line and sinker because ultimately I'm convinced more and more that that white evangelical theology is actually political rhetoric masquerading with religious language. And they have a few pieces, a few pieces of, of scripture to pull to make their point. But overall, ignores the, the, the blatant themes, like you said, Trip, of forgiveness and loan forgiveness or whatever else, you know, loving your enemy and and solidarity solidarity with the poor, et cetera. So anyway, I don't mean to go on that rant, but I agree, Trip. It is that's why so many of us are leaving those spaces and trying to find other rooms to explore in the Christian tradition because we just can't do it anymore. Yeah, and Ephesians is a one of the I don't know which verse in it, but just it's one of those texts where the author, Paul or someone else, uh, is using uh, the unity of the body to argue on behalf of justice. If you just ignore what he's arguing for and the fact that all of the church is he describes as being bound into the body of the killed by state Christ, then you know you can get 
all sorts of justifications. But like, if you know that he died cross dead by the hands of Rome and you're a Roman citizen who possesses power, slaves, all sorts of things that have a kind of privilege, large portions of the church don't, then the call for unity that your truest identity is in the body of the one who was executed. Um, that is a, that yes, it's a celebration of a unity we have in Christ, but you can't say that doesn't come with a demand I mean, take, dear listener, maybe you should throw on a Black Lives Matter shirt and go to a protest and see how it feels when your friends look at you. Yeah, like when you have solidarity with the cross dead or the lynched, and that, like, this is what the heart of James Cone is, is like, yes, there is salvation for the oppressed and the oppressor. It just looks different. It just looks different. Um, but yeah, a lot of people saw Jesus differently. Some saw him as kind of crazy. Some saw him as someone worth killing. Some called him as a hopeful, beautiful vision of justice where I might get seen and known by God. Like there's a lot of different responses, but it wasn't like, you know, they, there's like nine people running around with Jesus with different agendas. It's experienced differently. And yeah. um, anyway, sorry. I don't like, I, sometimes I get excited, Tim. I, I'm with you, Trip. I mean, I feel like this is where we can start really going for hours. So, yeah, I'm um, trying not to. I know, I know these. <laughs> I got in trouble when since your podcast over two hours once. <laughs> well, I I want to move to the final slide and then we'll wrap this up. And again, I just want to say, Adam and Trip, thank you for making time um, uh, to to really unpack this with me. I I think the audience will find it so helpful. And again, audience, just so you know, if you want more of this goodness, if you want Trips hilarious but also poignant commentary and adam clark's brilliance and knowledge about this stuff then come to beer camp hang out with us hang out if you type in my promo code no offense stripper out if you have one oh. but type in mine instead you get 50 bucks off your ticket not a bad deal so but honestly i think it's gonna be a great time october 13th through the 15th in north carolina it's gonna be a lot of fun i'm really looking forward to it so Theologybeer.camp is the url theologybeer.camp dear listener perfect and i'll have it in fifty dollars off Hey, all right. Last thing. And I, I think for me, this really spells out, at least for me as a former white evangelical, in, you know, as far as theology is concerned, this is where I go. Ah, this is why they're doing this. So here we go. Why should Christians be concerned? Many of the tenets of black liberation theology have seeped into evangelical churches and are taught by well-meaning pastors and leaders. I have to stop right there and say one thing. I've asked people time and time again, can you please show me? a prominent evangelical leader in the church that's doing that. I have yet to find anyone. So I, even that I just find very nonsensical, but oh, I was starting to get excited. I was like, <laughs> Oh, why should Christians should celebrate? Um, <laughs> All right. It, it was uh, in. <laughs> yeah. I wish it was, but I don't think it is. Uh, BLT is also taught at a number of historically conservative Christian colleges and universities. We see this when we are told to view the gospel or issues of justice through the lens of minority groups or the poor. We see it in the racializing of God slash Jesus and in the reframing of biblical texts to support the idea that Jesus came to liberate physically marginalized and oppressed people groups. And we see it in a redefinition of, quote, marginalized and, quote, oppressed to fit our current cultural context. According to BLT, Jesus did not come to liberate all people from the spiritual oppression of sin. The gospel was instead reframed to apply only to oppressed groups. You may have noticed that BLT's ideas sound a lot like conversations from Marxism. In fact, Cone was sympathetic to Marxism. He even believed that the Marxist framework offered a better chance of addressing race-based social inequalities than that of Christianity did. My quick thoughts on this, and I'll hand over to Adam, is first off, I know that, that, okay, at this point, evangelical theology plays like a Hillsong song. 
meaning you can guess where it's going. I know Marxism is going to make an appearance in this conversation. It always does. It's always here somewhere, somewhere behind the shadows. And boom, in the last slide, there it is. It turns out Marxism is behind all of this. The other thing I want to point out is that um, I think a couple of key points. Number one, uh, when they say that according to BLT, Jesus did not come to liberate all people from the spiritual oppression of sin. So there we have that very much evangelical theology. This is about spiritual liberation. This is not about your physical needs being taken care of. Although if they are, that might be nice. But the real key to pull my from my old Francis Chan, you know, teaching analogies is, you know, if if, if, if our earth, if our life is this little piece of of red uh, rope and the rest of the white rope is eternity, what really matters more? So spiritual liberation is key here. So well, I think that's what if an you, important part to what if you What if you give them a little shoebox full of like stuff from uh, the Dollar Tree and then you witness to them after they open it up at Christmas? Because I don't know if anyone's ever done that, but <laughs> I feel like it would kind of be the equivalent of the Good Samaritan. So like instead of, I don't know, binding someone who has conquered a beat on the side of the road's wounds and offering to pay for the health care, no matter where the bill goes, we could get like Franklin Graham to help us mail like cheap stuff made in sweatshops in China in shoeboxes. And then we could tell them about their spiritual sin. I not a bad idea. <laughs> oh, okay. I just, I just, it just hit me. It could have been a eureka moment. Um, one last thought I want to point out that I'm going to hand over to Adam. They also say that uh, black liberation theology is also taught at a number of historically conservative Christian colleges and universities. This honestly concerns me because the whole point of going to academics uh, or academia is to learn about other perspective, perspectives and worldviews other than the ones that maybe you grew up with. So, yes, I would hope. I would hope that an honest college, Christian or not, conservative or not, is teaching black liberation theology honestly and openly so their students can engage the literature and think about the world, I don't know, a little bit different than the white you know, supremacy culture they've without them even knowing it, have inherited. I mean, again, I'm not, guys, I'm not the academic here. I've only been homeschooled for a few <laughs> years, some community college, but I just think that's not a bad idea. All right, I'm done. I bet the, I bet this Instagram account stole the slides from those lectures at the conservative <laughs> evangelical school. And they were the like Hillsdale College or something. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> we need to put these on the IG. It's blowing up. The kids love it these days. <gasps> Bringing people to the Lord away from the Marxist black things. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what seminary or schools of religion and kind of progressive, even liberal formats is is they're not indoctrination systems or catechismic teachings that you present material and you invite a response. You don't invite a conclusion. You invite a responses mm -hmm. so that even when it is taught, it's taught to be aware of how other people think. It's not trying to indoctrinate you or coerce you into a point of view, right? Like when I teach my Black theology class, I don't assume that everybody agrees with the perspective of the author, right? But more to the point in terms of, um, uh, I can't even see the slide now. Oh, oh, why should you be concerned about this? Um, <laughs> yeah, this is a real kind of, a, well, I'll start this way. When it talks about the idea of spiritual versus physical, 
Cohen uses the idea of personhood, mm. right? Like in terms of what oppresses persons that, and the person is a unity of spiritual and physical. And he says, Jesus, and this is what liberation theology does. Jesus was concerned about the human person, not just the spiritual, not just the physical, but the full person. Because if you only are concerned about spiritual meaning and spiritual significance, you'll ignore Matthew 25, right? To feed, hunger, clothe, right? To feed, clothe, uh, um, and take care and care for, for the poor. And if you're just concerned about the spirit, the, the um, physical, you'll ignore the, the, the higher calling about meaning, right? And purpose and calling. So what Cohn does is really say like, the gospel is concerned about the whole person mm. and the person is a unity, mm. right? That's one. And two, in terms of Marxism, you know, Marxism is much more used. Let me just say this. Mm. In, in the tradition of liberation theology, without debating like what Marxism is, because I know the evangelical community has a specific understanding of Marxism that is not necessarily shared by liberation theologians. When liberation theologians talk about Marxism, they're thinking about it. First of all, Marxism is a way, is not a scientific or dogmatic position. It's a way to express a desire for equality. So when they see it, they're talking about it from an acts point of view, that in acts, the early Christian community wasn't asked just to tie 10%, right? They were asked to give up all their possessions and share together in a Christian kind of communal form. So it's a way of trying to talk about a communalism, right, on a national scale. What's a modern way of talking about building a national community, and not just from the idea of political rights, but from the idea of economic and material rights, right? We have a political republic, or we have a form of political equality in terms of formal doctrines, but we don't talk about economic equality, mm -hmm. right? And if you're talking about the full person, we have to talk about political and economic equality. So much of the flirtation with Marxism had to do with economic democracy, right? Talking about, it's trying to name that in the tradition of a Bernie Sanders and others in terms of that, not a suppression of votes or a godlessness or other types of type of suppressive projects that you see in the Soviet Union. It was more of a moral idea to talk about a form of living that Christians had in the early period that's, that didn't, wasn't dependent on private property in my stuffness, right? It was communally owned. Mm -hmm. So more like a co-op, right? Right. Than a capitalist class. Mm. And that, and, and Cohn doesn't really even get into that that much, but you see that much more with Latin American liberation the, the theologians. That wasn't central to Cohn's project. Do you, can I can I ask you a question, Tim? Like that pops yeah. up to me as someone who is kind of familiar where this comes from. Yeah. Because like if I read it as a if this was sent to me as an email when I was a minister, what I would hear is a parent or grandparent who's really anxious that the person they raised 
um, or their grandkid um, isn't buying the vision of the truth that they feel is necessary for God to love them. Right. So yes, I think they're wrong. Right. But underneath this big fear of like Christians should be concerned is that they see kids, grandkids buying what they think is BS. Uh, and they're listening to people who like reading James Cone <laughs> and, and other whatever wokest things or a Marxist <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, and, and while there might not be uh, a, 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 ton of evangelicals uh, out there doing it. I, I do think the it points towards something that is just part of the awkwardness of waking up to a bigger vision that the people who handed you the faith uh, w- could see you as an enemy because you moved ahead of them in certain dimensions of it. And uh, they see you listening and caring and learning from, say, the Black Lives Matter movement or taking seriously uh, the questions of systemic uh, justice and state violence. They see that as a threat to their identity because while they think their identity is in Christ, it's also in you know, American nationalism, and they may not even use the term. And so I feel like there's this, this tension where uh, the people that are upset are anxious because some of the people they know are really resonating with part of the beautiful parts of the church they thought were off limits. And one of the reasons I love what you do um, and I'm excited the, the anytime we get to hang out or anytime my friends like Adam or like when Aaron Simmons was on your podcast and stuff like that is uh, I, I just think that if you're like the grandkid that's getting sent those posts, know that there's like a whole bunch of people in the church and there are all sorts of expressions who, when you start to ask those uneasy questions that your grandma or grandpa or parents are upset about, like that we go, oh, like that stirring isn't forsaking your family. It's responding to the spirit. And they, that's a good thing. And it is awkward. Uh, and, you know, what was our liturgical text last week? This Jesus uh, uh, story was, unless uh, you hate your father, hate your mother, like the, that whole thing, and take up your cross and follow me. Um, that, like, you know, it's not literally saying go hate everyone, but it is saying that allegiance to Christ can cost you things that you that could be central to your identity. Um, and to, to give allegiance to the one that died cross dead, uh, proclaiming the coming of God's kingdom is to give an allegiance that sometimes is against your own, the power you inherit and the power that's so attached to people we love's identity. And I got I, I so. So like I kind of do see that bit that that slide in a positive way because there's been plenty of times evangelicals did not ever have to write blog posts and complain about uh, uh, <laughs> white evangelicals uh, you know caring about this. And mm-hmm. sometimes the anxiety isn't that they just haven't read the Bible. It's that when their kids and grandkids change their minds, they feel like they're being uh, left behind and forsaken. Uh, mm-hmm. And and that hurts regardless of, you know, what the transition is. So, so what's the question? Like, how, like, how do you read that? Cause like, I, like I read it as it's optimistic. You were thinking of just the numbers, but you know, your account didn't exist 10 years ago when I started the podcast and stuff, the evangelical things I'd get were like, Oh, you're just being a postmodern truth thing. Now it's like, you know, this kind of stuff. And yeah. And I think it's because we're, we're people are asking bigger, like different questions and bigger questions. Or 
I mean, when I see when I see posts like this as a whole, you know, this like whole five part thing, I go, I, I guess there is an element that's like, okay, like you know, they're aware of what's happening, but I'm also I. I just see like how the I call the propaganda machine kind of how how it is, because the reality is most evangelicals are not super engaged beyond like an Instagram account or two. So they'll read this and go, oh, my gosh, I now know what black liberation theology is. I now know what James Cone is. And I know it's a false gospel and like mission accomplished, because honestly, who has time to read five, ten books? You know, or or who who really can, and then trying to understand that and ponder it. That's not like how this. That's not how our society as a whole, let alone how white evangelical church culture is set up. So you know that when I see this, I go, great. Um, what is done in one slide takes an hour and a half to unpack. That's why this work to me is so important, and this is why I think the work that new evangelicals do. I'm seeing more and more on the podcast. It's almost like a bridge between folks like yourself and just like lay people who are like, they'll read this and go, well, I, I don't think it's true, but I don't know how to understand this differently. Right. And so, and like, for example, you know, um, Riley and I, another a, a person who works with me, um, we spent three hours responding to an Ali Stuckey podcast on the January 6th insurrection where she had a, a, a an Alex Jones level reporter on arguing that the cops started the insurrection and that in that Joe Biden's DOJ is a political um, activist network trying to imprison January 6 people uh, unjustly. We what 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 took, what took Ali an hour to say took us three hours to go through line by line to to try and just debunk and tell people the context. So just that being said, and then we'll wrap up and we'll, we'll, we'll be all done here. Um, you know, I just think like there's a lot of damage being done with posts like this that 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 convince a lot of people in these circles like, oh, now I know. And I think that's why I try and spend the time I can to bring people like yourself and Adam on the show to actually get nuanced and get deep and rich and unpack what's actually behind all of this. So this, this, I guess in a way can be encouraging, but it's also frustrating. It's more frustrating than anything. Like, oh my God, here's another thing. I got to find someone, you know, and just kind of unpack. So that, I love the work, but that's, that, that's the challenge. You know, again, four slides took us an hour and a half to unpack. It's a lot of work, but it has to be done. We have to do it. Mm. So, um, anyway, listen, I want to say to both of you, Adam and Tripp, thank you so much for making time. I appreciate it. I'll make sure to put links in the show notes to the, uh, to the beer camp and also to all of your, your online, you know, social medias and stuff. Adam, let me know when your podcast launches. I would love to share that on, on our platforms. I'm, I'm so excited. And again, thank you for your time, gentlemen. It was great seeing you. I'll see you in October. Great. See you then. All right. Take care. Everybody yeah. come beer camp, beer camp. <laughs> Woo. See ya.